previously on Lost. If we look at the Middle East, I think it's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. We weren't friends before, but you come to the Godfather on his daughter's wedding day. Call me the Godfather. College students, crummy students, great students, horrible students, dumb people, liberal people, conservative people. Everybody was doing the best they've ever done. PhDs from MIT. PhDs from crummy colleges. Hey man, everybody on Twitter thinks you're a dumb nerd. I control reality, you bow down and do what I say. Look at this photograph. Every time I do it makes me laugh. Okay. Broadcasting live to tape across the nation and the world from the new Society Theater in the city that's much less than the sum of its parts, Seattle, Washington. It's the podcast for a world gone mad. This is The Society Show. And now, your host, a man with the biggest gap tooth in all the podcasts, Christian Patterson. Hello and welcome to the Society Show. Do you believe in society's laws? Today I've got a solo episode. I'm Mr. Solo Dolo. I'm uh, actually in between jobs, you know. This podcast is kind of my third job in a way and because of that these next few weeks i will probably not be having any guests they will be fully solo episodes i'm mr solo dolo yeah that'll give me an opportunity to talk about some things i don't normally talk about with guests go a little more in depth try my uh, comedy chops And I'll get to that in a moment, but before I do, please be sure to like, subscribe, give five stars, all of that stuff. Tell your friends about the Society Show. Trying to get the word out more. Sure you hit that like button in the face! A little later in the episode, I will be talking a lot about the situation in Israel and Palestine. In particular, you know, as this uh, situation, this crisis, is crisis for the Palestinians is going on, people kind of start paying attention halfway through. And because of that, I it seems like Israel and uh, Israeli representatives are able to do this rhetorical trick where they're able to say, You don't know how this started. The Palestinians started it. Uh, This is blah, blah, blah. It's way more complicated. And this isn't exactly a breaking news show. It's once a week. 
And I like to do a little bit of looking back. So later on in the episode, I am going to look at exactly how this current conflict in Palestine, specifically East Jerusalem, how this all started. I think that will add a lot of context to everything that you're seeing now. The uh, destroying of the AP News building, the all of those things that are going on at the hands of Israel. So, we'll get into that. But first... But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. Here's some uh, quick news stories. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. Joe Biden is thinking of making Rahm Emanuel the ambassador to Japan. Yeah, Joe Biden released a statement on it. He said, quote, I just can't stand these Japanese people, man. So we're going to send our worst to piss them off, Jack. And speaking of Japan, Japan is still pushing forward with this year's postponed Olympics. Public health officials are concerned about COVID-19 and would like the Olympics to be delayed again. Also, old school sports fans would like it to be delayed again, so the summer and winter Olympics happen the same year, just like the olden times. This next story is from France. Uh, Emmanuel Macron's party pulled support from a political candidate. Yeah, they pulled support because she was wearing a Muslim headscarf in her campaign photo. Yeah, so Macron released a statement on this. He said, quote, I cannot support public displays of religion, he said, as he stood in front of the country's major landmarks that all celebrate the Catholic Church. (laughs) And finally, with a really sad news story, there was a mass school shooting in Russia killing nine people. Once again, we are learning that mass shootings are the U.S.'s biggest cultural export of the 21st century. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. Now, let's uh, get into Israel and Palestine. I don't want to dive headfirst into it, so... uh, I do have a a little list prepared here, a top 10 list. Oh, yeah. Bored the hell out of me after a while. I was like, okay, let's try something else. Tonight's top 10 list, sponsored by JCPenney. When it fits, you feel it. Top 10 ways to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Number 10. Have Dennis Rodman mediate peace talks. Sounds like a great idea to me. Number 9. If Israel recognized Palestinians as equal citizens under Israeli law, 
yeah, that <laughs> that would sure solve it, all right. <laughs> Don't see that happening though. Number eight. This one's a little complex, so bear with me. The military-industrial complex creates an Iron Dome for Palestine. You know the Iron Dome? That's like the anti-rocket system that Israel has. It shoots the rockets out of the air before they crash. Um, so, imagine if they built an Iron Dome for Palestine allowing the military-industrial complex to then create many more, many, many more rockets, folks, for both sides. Both sides are getting rockets. Make that Iron Dome do its stuff. Number seven, make Linda Sarsour the president of APAC. That would uh, solve the conflict pretty quick. Number six, Abolish the conception of state governments. Whoa, trippy dude. Number five. I like this one. If the U.S. makes Gaza and the West Bank the 52nd and 51st states. Yeah, that would probably solve it. Number four. This is a bold one. Give Hamas nukes. Number three. Uh, yeah, this this one's pretty straightforward. Number three. Israel stops bombing civilians and civilian infrastructure. Yeah, that would uh, do a lot of work to solve this, all right. Number two. This is where we're getting creative. Major League Baseball moves its next expansion team to Gaza. That would definitely help. And number one, give peace a chance. Imagine all the people sharing all the world you do. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And with that top 10, uh, let's get into it. So, like I was saying earlier, a lot of times Israel, representatives of Israel, defenders of Israel, what they'll come out and say is that people don't understand how this conflict started, or it's way too complicated, or there's a lot of factors that you don't know. But from my experience... The more I learn about Israel, the more familiar it seems, the more I can understand parts of it. And the reason it seems so familiar is because the politics of Israel are actually pretty similar to the U.S.'s politics. And uh, hopefully... When I tell you how this conflict all started, that will become more and more clear. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. So this conflict, as it exists now, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict of 2021, revolves around Israeli settlers encroaching on Sheikh Jarrah, the historically Muslim neighborhood I mean, there's lots of historically Muslim neighborhoods, but this is, even in Israel's uh, purported uh, views, this is in East Jerusalem, which is indeed still 
Palestinian territory. Israel has been trying to forcibly remove Palestinians from this area for a long time. So I'm reading from Al Jazeera for this quote. Quote, in total, 58 people, including 17 children, are set to be forcibly displaced to make way for Jewish settlers. The court rulings are a culmination of a decades-long struggle for these Palestinians to stay in their homes. In 1972, several Jewish settler organizations filed a lawsuit against the Palestinian families living in Sheikh Jarrah, alleging the land originally belonged to Jews. These groups, mostly funded by donors from the United States have waged a relentless battle that resulted in the displacement of 43 Palestinians in 2002, as well as Hunan, as the Hunan and Gawi families in 2008, and the Shamasneh family in 2017, end quote. Last week, I talked about the raid on Al-Aqsa Mosque, but I've read more on that now, and uh, I want to give more background into why this raid took place. So, AFP reported that in April, quote, Israeli police closed the stared plaza outside the old city's Damascus Gate a traditional gathering spot for Palestinians following evening Ramadan prayers. The closure triggered violent clashes with police who removed the barricades after several nights of unrest. Around the same time that happened, this also happened. So I'm quoting from New York Times. This is all happening kind of concurrently. Quote, a squad of Israeli police officers entered Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, brushed the Palestinian attendants aside, and strode across its vast limestone courtyard. Then they cut the cables to the loudspeakers that broadcast prayers to the faithful from four medieval minarets. It was the night of April 13th, the first day of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. It was also Memorial Day in Israel, which honors those who died fighting for the country. In other words, those who di died fighting Palestinians. And by fighting, I mean killing. Uh, continuing from New York Times, the Israeli president was delivering a speech at the Western Wall a sacred Jewish site that lies below the mosque, and Israeli officials were concerned that the prayers would drown it out, end quote. So I guess this really paints a uh, great picture of how power dynamics work in Israel, right? So ostensibly, Muslims have control of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The way it's set up in Israel is even though it is also a holy site to Jewish people, this is where the Temple Mount was, but like the the two temples that were on top of the the mountain, this the Al-Aqsa Mosque is in the same place. 
But because of an agreement that Israel made, like a concession, only Muslims are allowed to go in there to worship. Instead, Jewish people worship at the Western Wall, which is a wall around the Temple Mount. And some Jewish people don't even see have a desire to go to Al-Aqsa Mosque because it seemed to be such a holy location. And um, so I don't think they have exactly an issue with the fact that Jews are not allowed to go into the mosque. I'm sure a lot of the right-wing uh, Israelis do. So the power dynamic at play is, I'm sorry, I got a little sidetracked. Muslims ostensibly control the mosque. They are they are in charge of it. But the Israeli government can send in IDF forces to sabotage the mosque. So the Israeli president can give a speech uh, essentially aggrandizing the Israeli military for being supreme over the Palestinians. Like, that is what a Memorial Day represents. I mean, it's for the people who died fighting Palestinians, which is basically a way for is Israel to feel aggrieved about itself, even though they disproportionately kill way more Palestinians than Palestinians kill IDF. And I'm not even saying Israeli citizens. I'm saying the actual military forces going into Palestinian areas. Also, keep in mind... The raid I described from the New York Times, the ones where they cut the cables so they couldn't broadcast the call to prayer. Keep in mind, this is a different raid of Al-Aqsa Mosque from the one I talked about last episode. So this is all just still the pretext for the broader conflict. A week or two after this happened, the Jewish supremacist anti-miscegenation group called Lahava, remember that because it'll come up in a minute, marched through Jerusalem and guess what they were chanting? Death to Arabs. They were destroying Palestinian businesses. Well, actually, in this instance, I do not know if they were destroying Palestinian businesses, but they certainly were shortly after this, if not um, during this march. Fast forward another couple weeks. We're now at the beginning of May, getting closer to when the conflict started. The politician named Itamar Ben-Gavir moved his office into Sheikh Jarrah. So, let me give you some background on this Ben-Gavir figure. He is the leader of Atzma Yehudit, which literally means Jewish power, which is a political party closely aligned with Lahava, the Jewish supremacist group I just mentioned. Ben-Gavir was involved with far-right groups throughout his youth. He, appear, he had to appear in court several times when he was young um, because he'd, he'd affiliate himself with outlawed far-right political groups and end up in court. And, in fact, Ben-Gavir wasn't allowed in the IDF 
when he was conscripted because of his far-right history. Now, imagine that being so far-right, you're not even allowed into the IDF. But, of course, a lot of that's for cover because they want people in the IDF who would be willing to kill Palestinians, but I don't think they want people who are ideologically fully just full-blown into the idea that all of all of Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza should be inhabited by uh, Jewish Israelis. Like, they don't want people with that extreme of beliefs because they want to do it slowly. They want this process to take decades and decades, hoping no one will notice it. They can't just hire people... Er, conscript people who will go completely rogue start massacring people in a truly blatant way because the israeli government is obsessed with their pr they 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 want to keep it to a low boil enough that they can slowly get away with more and more that's my theory about why they don't want far-right people in the idf um, but continuing on about that, according to an article in Haaretz, Ben Gavir became an attorney after he chose to represent himself during his numerous court appearances when he was younger. And with that, I must say my favorite thing that is definitely true, a man who is his own lawyer has a fool for a client. And now that Ben Gavir is an attorney. He basically ever since he has represented basically any far right Israelis who commit acts of terror against Palestinians, especially in the West Bank. For example, he represented the perpetrators of the Duma arson attack, where two Israelis firebombed two separate Palestinian homes in the middle of the night. They basically burned down one house, realized no one was home and no one died, so they went to another home where pe people were home, burned it down, killed three people, including a child, and seriously injured a fourth. And that's just one of the many, many, many types of people he has represented. Uh, but going back to the timeline of events that led to all of this... Um, the same day that Ben Gavir moved his office into Sheikh Jarrah, May 6th, um, there were several Israeli and Palestinian protests and counter-protests and whatnot going on in this area. And Israelis were generally trying to intimidate Palestinians. So here's a story from AP News, quote, Pro-Palestinian protesters have been meeting for nightly iftars, the meal held after breaking the day-long fast during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan at long tables set up outside. On Thursday, settlers set up a table and awning across the street. They were joined by Itamar Ben-Gavir, the leader of a far-right party with roots in a violent anti-Arab extremist group. 
They are referring to his party Jewish power and their ties to the group Lahava. Continuing from AP News, video circulating online later showed protesters on both sides, both sides, very fine people on both sides, hurling rocks and chairs at each other and Palestinians tearing down the awning before Israeli police moved in. There were no reports of serious injuries, end quote. Now, the way AP frames this, the very fine people on both sides, that is such crap because obviously what they're trying to do is just people who are celebrating their cultural customs. In May, especially in somewhere like Palestine, it's probably really hot. Like, here in Seattle, it's getting warm out. It's spring, but uh, we're not in the Middle East, so I imagine it's a lot more popular to eat outside there. So they're just doing their custom, eating their, their religion associated meal it's a meal associated with religious practice generally minding their own business just eating with their friends and family in the evening and uh, these people who are trying to take over their neighborhood show up set tables up across the alley and start harassing them Of course this is intimidation. The fact that the Palestinians were, like, throwing chairs at them, of course they would. Imagine, okay, this is really easy to imagine. Imagine the neighborhood you live in. I'm imagining mine right now. Imagine a group of people for the past... 50, 60 years have slowly been encroaching on where your neighborhood is. You know, let's say I'm in Seattle. Let's say there's been people who are like, well, we used to live here 2,000 years ago. Also, let's imagine they're not Native Americans because they would have a legitimate claim to this land. I mean, the freaking City Hall Park here in Seattle is literally built on the battlefield that settlers fought with Duwamish people. So... Imagine they're not Native Americans because they have a legitimate claim to this land. But imagine it's someone else who's like, yeah, we actually lived here 2,000 years ago. Native Americans didn't. We did. And uh, because of that, we're going to start claiming some of this land. So let's say, you know, they claim West Seattle. Then they start claiming North Seattle, South Seattle over a period of decades. And then they finally say, okay, we've claimed enough. We have half of the city. Uh, You can have the other half. But then all of a sudden, you're just minding your own business in the neighborhood they said was yours. And they start, you know, hanging out on the corner there. Maybe they hang out across uh, across the street. They're associating with the most genocidal politicians of their society. They're bringing in their most far-right elements. They're getting foreign money to to live where you live. Anyone, literally anyone, would throw chairs at people doing that. (laughs) 
And now we're about caught up to when most people started paying attention to this conflict. All of that was before people were paying attention to it, including myself. Um, So on May 7th, that's when there was that police riot at Al-Aqsa Mosque that I talked about last week. And that's how we got where we are now. So since the beginning of this conflict... I just want to make this completely clear because this is an element of the story that people do not talk about. Since the beginning of this conflict alone, approximately 10,000 Palestinians have been displaced. Basically, they'll get a call from the IDF, the landlord will get a call. We're bombing that building in 20 minutes. Tell everyone to get out. Barely have enough time to grab whatever you need. Maybe you have a, a cat and a, and a child. You grab the cat and the child. Everything else you own is kaboom. Kaboom. It's about to go kaboom. Everything you know. And then you don't have a home. You're literally homeless. That building will not be repaired. It will not be rebuilt because Israeli uh, controls the supplies to that region. Your home will will remain rubble because Israel doesn't even allow supplies to clear rubble. They are literally just destroying people's homes. <laughs> Ten thousand people have been displaced. Israel bombed residential towers. Israel bombed Al Jazeera, AP News, and Middle East Eye. Not only that, Netanyahu freaking tweeted out a video um, with like very glorifying imageries of these buildings collapsing. In a way, it was very bizarre. It seemed very deliberately evocative of 9-11. No joke. That was my first thought when seeing it. Like, he is presenting this footage like a 9-11 event. And, And, I mean, if you just look at a map of casualties in this conflict, it paints quite the picture. Also, when you look at a map of casualties or a list of casualties, it will specify that a lot of the Israeli casualties were Arab Israelis, which uh, really makes you wonder, who killed them? Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Now, uh, in in the second part of the episode... You know, that was a pretty, pretty sad segment. It's sad for me. It's sad for me to think about the the plight of the Palestinian people. And uh, I'm going to have a little more of a, like, dessert segment that's a little lighter. So, I want to talk about trains. If you're on Twitter, or at least the circles of Twitter that I am in, you may have seen on the Society Show Twitter account, at Society underscore show, in the past I've tweeted a few things about trains. And 
you know, I'd say a few weeks ago now, this was a discourse cycle on Twitter. Uh, So the discourse was basically Biden's infrastructure project uh, would give some money to companies like Amtrak. This, of course, is hardly the train infrastructure that a country needs. Amtrak is not a particularly good organization in any sense. I mean, it's basically for-profit. It operates similarly to USPS, where it's in a way part of the government, but it's separate enough that it's a for-profit institution. And I believe Amtrak is even more kind of divorced from the government than USPS is, the mail. And because of that infrastructure plan, uh, it particularly Pete Buttigieg tweeted out this like dream map of what someone wants high-speed rail in the U.S. to look like. Those types of things set off a short period of discourse on Twitter. And I'll just say, y- you might be thinking, why would he be talking about few weeks old discourse that happened on Twitter? The thing is, I'm talking about it because the discourse didn't really get resolved. It revolved around a few neoliberal Democrats, basically, and probably Republicans, but basically neoliberals across the spectrum being like, Haha, trains are so stupid, we have planes now and cars. Ever heard of them? <laughs> and, um... People would always, like, shout them down, be like, what are you talking about? Relax, dude. And then they'd be like, the stupid train lovers are after me. I guess I'm really edgy or something then. (laughs) And, you know, that's how that discourse resolved. It didn't go anywhere. And so in my mind, it's still lingering in the collective conscious. It's still in the zeitgeist. The contradictions were not resolved. And so I'm going to try to, I'm going to point out some of these people's criticisms of trains. And I really want to, I want to keep the train discourse alive because the anti-train people are really stupid and they are the status quo. So as long as we are not talking about trains, we're not going to get better infrastructure in the U.S. So let me point out some of the tweets that uh, were going around and I'm, I'm going to give my refutations. The first one I have up here is from Sean Trenday, according to his Twitter bio. Sean Trinde, senior election analyst at Real Clear Politics, recovering attorney. You may notice that a lot of the crappiest people on Twitter are former or current attorneys. And yeah, so I don't really know his angle. He's a he's a senior elections analyst. He tweeted You, quote, why don't we have an awesome national train system like Europe? Me! And then he includes a picture of a map of Europe with the outline of the U.S. over it. Uh, Basically, you will see on this map that uh, the U.S., uh, the west coast of the U.S. is around where the U.K. and France are, basically encompasses all of the U.K. and France, and then the far east coast of the U.S., 
uh, basically reaches Kazakhstan. So the U.S. is uh, about almost as big as Europe, really. I mean, excluding the Nordic parts, it doesn't uh, encapture the Iberian Peninsula, but, you know, his point is the U.S. is freaking big. The stars at night are big and my issue with this is so what (laughs) like actually so what why is the fact that the u.s big mean that we can't have decent train infrastructure and you know it's it's really a stupid point so let's look into his replies because this is a bit of a thread to see what what his actual point is. He says, quote, Choo Choo Twitter is adorable. It's like watching our pug get angry. Anywho, yeah, you can probably do a train from Barcelona to Moscow, but dot dot dot. I'm guessing you almost never would, which is the point. It's why a national high-speed rail is silly. Now, this is funny, because it's like, this is what the most annoying type of people do when they're called out on Twitter. People are basically replying like, what do you mean? That's not a good reason. Okay, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, choo-choo Twitter, it's so adorable. Ah." Like, why do all these, like, think tank, attorney, journalist types think that just being, like, so condescending makes them look good. Like, yeah, we already know you're an elitist prick, Sean Trende. Comprende, Sean Trende. You don't really have to rub it in how much of an elitist prick you are. But here he makes his first actual substantial point. He says, you can probably do a train from Barcelona to Moscow, but I'm guessing you almost never would. But this demonstrates a total just lack of comprehension about the basics of how people travel by train. Has this guy ever taken a subway? Does he think if you ride a subway, you have to take it to its end destination? Oh, I'm on the blue line. Guess I'm here until I reach the outskirts of town. Just everyone go out and have fun. And remember, if you win, I take you out for ice cream. If you lose... You drive us to the outskirts of town and leave us there? (laughs) No, Binky. If you lose, I still take you out for ice cream. I'll never get to see the outskirts of town. No, people travel the same way in trains and subways. Virtually no one travels the whole extent. Let's say there's a train from Barcelona to Moscow, right? Let's say I got on the train in Barcelona. What do you think the chances I'm going all the way to Moscow are? Very little. Does the train exist? Yes, where would you most likely be going if you started in Barcelona? Hmm, let me, I have Google Maps open. Hmm, you'd probably ride it up. Maybe you'd stop in Marseille, France. Maybe it goes along the coast. Maybe you eventually end up in Milan or Turin. 
maybe Venice eventually. Maybe you go through v- Slovenia. Maybe a uh, s- maybe a stop in uh, Luz Biljana. Maybe you stop in Zagreb. Maybe Budapest. And I'm not even like that close to Moscow at that point. Like Hungary is still halfway to Moscow from freaking Spain. Those are the types of places people take a train to. They don't start at one end and go to the other. So does that mean there really has to be a train from Chicago to Seattle? Probably not. I mean, sure, that would be really cool, like a high-speed train from Chicago to Seattle, but like, it's gonna stop in Minneapolis, and then where? Until Seattle. Yeah, that's probably a trip you have to take by flight, um, at least in my lifetime. But what if you wanted to go to Chicago to Minneapolis? You definitely should be able to do that by train. Another example. If I'm going from Seattle to Portland, that's about a three-hour drive, I'd assume. Maybe maybe uh, a little less if there's no traffic. That flight is probably about an hour but then you also have to spend multiple hours in the airport on both sides when you add it all up. So, so not really worth it to fly. You could also take the Greyhound. That's a little bit slower than driving, but not terrible. You could take the Amtrak, a little bit slower than driving, but a little bit more expensive than a Greyhound. Ultimately, you're left with the conclusion that the most efficient way to travel there would be by high-speed rail. You could probably get there in two hours, maybe an hour and a half, maybe an hour. I'm not really sure. But it would be more efficient. It'd be more efficient than any other type of ground travel. It would also not only be cheaper than a flight, but more efficient. You would spend less time in transit. So ultimately, these criticisms are crap, but let's see what else Sean Comprende has to say. If you want to talk about certain regional lines, New York to Boston, San Diego to San Francisco, maybe Texas, it's a different story, at least in, in theory. But sorry, something like this is just dumb. And then he quote tweets the map of uh, that... Judge tweeted out. Now, let me highlight some things about this map. They don't have a route from Chicago to Seattle. They do have a Chicago to Minneapolis train. The train that crosses the, the entire country uh, would actually be from Boston, New York, Philly, Pittsburgh, then to Chicago with stops in between, then throughout uh, the Midwest into Colorado, Las Vegas, and then eventually LA. They would cross that way. I don't think that's too strange, honestly. How many people would go from LA to New York by train? Probably not many. How many people would go from LA to Vegas by train? 
a lot. How many people would go from LA to Denver by train? Probably not a ton, but a decent amount. You see what I'm saying? People don't travel a train for super long distances. That's what planes are for. But we're currently over-dependent on planes. We use so much planes and they waste so much freaking energy. It's insane. The sort of general malaise that only the genius possess and the insane lament. And now I have some other tweets from a guy named Ben Dreyfus. He is a tweet deleter. Um, so I had to get some of these tweets from another thread. For example, a couple weeks ago he tweeted a hot take that I thought was so freaking stupid. He was basically like, if you drink coffee and you don't like instant coffee, then you're an elitist. Excuse me, bro? Instant coffee? The only people who drink instant coffee are people who don't like coffee and the British... Fuck, it's a Sunday. Is that who you really want to associate with? The British, we drink the instant coffee because we don't like regular coffee. We don't know what good coffee tastes like, so we drink instant coffee. Hello, my name is Simon. <laughs> Hi, I like to do drawings. Is that who you want to associate those guys? Like, what do you want, Breton trash? Come on, and I say this, I. Listen, I love a, a high-quality cup of coffee. I, I had a $4 espresso yesterday. Is that uh, an extravagant expense? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it, maybe. Well, actually, nowadays, no. F $4 for a coffee drink is not that extravagant. Is it a little, uh, maybe, I guess there's an association with drinking espressos being maybe snootier than drip coffee, but having said all that, I have nice coffee beans at my home. Sometimes I still like to walk to the convenience store and drink some of their coffee. I'm not above gas station coffee. I'm not above the worst of the worst coffee you can imagine. And I still will never drink instant coffee. But of course, Ben Dreyfus's comically bad take that's too comical to even take seriously, he still deleted it. Like, come on, dude. No one cares that much. I, I mean, I do because... It, Instant coffee is just crap, like literally freaking crap. Anyway, um, he was also complaining about Pete Buttigieg, as if Pete Buttigieg is just the most woke person, and he also deleted that. But I do, I did find an article, in fact, where they uh, preserved some of his tweets about trains. So let's see what he said. And this is back on April 1st, so quote, I like that people care about trains, but have you guys ever been on a really long train ride? It's not great. I've taken Amtrak across the country, and it's really not an ideal way of doing that. Again, has this guy ever ridden a subway? No one takes any type of train from end to end, unless it's a very short train line. It's just so obtuse. Like, they, they don't really... It, they make it seem like they know nothing about trains, and yet they're such a freaking authority on it. 
He continues, quote, they're obviously nice for short journeys. After people told him what I just said in the replies, backtracking a bit. But then he gets back on the same beat, quote, The idea of trains is always great, but in reality, airplanes are both faster and in many cases cheaper. Again, this is only true if you're thinking about flying across country. If you're flying to Portland from Seattle, it would absolutely be faster than a plane. You have to get there at least 90 minutes early. Because the plane boards a half hour early, you gotta expect to go through security for at least an hour. You're probably safer going there two, three hours early. Maybe I'm sounding like a dad, but whatever. And then you gotta deal with all the rigmarole once you get there, and then take the taxi, blah, blah, blah. It's all just a huge to-do. I mean, there's rarely a time I can think of where a train would be more expensive than a plane for the types of train rides people actually take. He continues, humans have mastered flight and buddy, it's amazing. No, planes really aren't freaking amazing whatsoever. They suck. They don't even serve you food anymore. People complain, made jokes about airplane food all the time. And now they don't serve airplane food. Yeah, I'm not really blaming, like, Jerry Seinfeld for the lack of airplane food. What's the deal with airplane peanuts? They just did that to save money. But, I mean, that brings up an interesting point. Like, I think in a hundred years, say someone watched, like, a joke joke about airplane food, they wouldn't even know what that means. Like, they wouldn't get that airplanes used to serve food. That's besides the point, though. Ben Dreyfus just continues. He's with the whole, I thought about taking a train from New York to LA, but it was too expensive and it'd be a five-day trip. Yeah, no kidding, dude. You're the only person who has thought about or taken a train or done anything with a train uh, who's like, well, I guess I gotta go to the furthest place possible. Uh-oh, this take too long. Guess we shouldn't improve U.S. infrastructure. The whole point of the high-speed train is that you wouldn't spend five days on the train, dude. Um, I mean, he goes more into his tweets. I'll, they're just stupid, so I'll read them and close out the show. Quote, Why are people still tweeting at me about how they love trains? I don't care. I'm not trying to take your precious trains from you. The thing is, he is, though. He's part of the same zeitgeist that contributed to the U.S.'s shit infrastructure to begin with. If this dude was around when they were building the freeway system, he would be like, We already have horse and bucky and surface streets, and we already have horses, blah, blah, blah. Then he continues, quote, One of the funnier and more surreal parts of just spouting off random opinions all the time, yes, he certainly does that, re, 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 you know, like an email, re, his uh, tweet about instant coffee, so I'll start again. One of the funnier and more surreal parts of just spouting off random opinions all the time is every once in a while discovering some random niche Twitter filled with militant train enthusiasts, or whatever. 
quote, 100 billion insane people are insisting to me that if only there were high-speed rail in the United States, then they would use the train to cross the country. And buddy, that would still be way stupider and slower than flying. I mean, yeah, but he's picking the most low-hanging fruit because what I'm saying and what is actually true, most people would not take that cross-country trip. Most people would fly. But Ben Dreyfus is purposefully ignoring that uh, to pick out just people who love trains and want to travel by train because it's a train. And then he actually does touch on this when he says, quote, I personally don't believe that shaming people about flying on planes is an effective way of dealing with global warming, but your journey. This is purposefully obtuse because he's an obvious neoliberal pulling the whole there is no ethical consumption under capitalism card, but he is a neoliberal, so it just comes off as disingenuous as all hell. Like, this is obviously disingenuously trying to use left rhetoric against them. But the point isn't shaming individual people for flying. The point is to get less people on flights and get them on trains because that would be much better way of saving energy. No one's shaming you for flying. You People just want there to be more trains, which would actually be good for the environment. What people are saying is the opposite. No one, people aren't shaming individuals, they're advocating for a structural change. I've got time to do a little self-care. And with that, I would like to close the show by saying, Ben Dreyfus, Sean Trinde, you're not a big enough deal to get added to the society show denunciation list. I am not denouncing you. You are just nothing to the show. You are just dime a dozen neoliberals. But I will say, you're still invited on the show, and you're welcome to defend yourself. So if you think you could uh, stand up to the pressure of the pressure cooker... This is the pressure cooker. Then you're welcome on the pressure cooker. Welcome to the Pressure Cooker. And with that, my name is Christian. This has been The Society Show. Be sure to follow The Society Show on Twitter at society underscore show. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Christian is cool. Is is spelled I-Z, Christian I-Z cool. You can check out the Society Show website at societyshow.net. And finally, you can call in the, the phone number to leave a message and have it played on the show is 971-238-4138. And this has been the Society Show. A Sicilian man has to do any favors that someone asks on his daughter's wedding day. Come to me on my daughter's wedding day.